I just think people are sometimes surprised that this like small Asian woman is like a super tough negotiator and I'm not mean about it. I just, I don't give up very easily and I negotiate hard for what I want. I ask for what I want on behalf of my company and I negotiate very hard for those things. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Jen Whedon, the Vice President of Business Development at LinkedIn. Jen has spent more than a decade leading business development at many of the biggest names in tech, where she's seen the rise and fall of companies like AOL, MySpace, and Glam Media. In this episode, we speak with Jen about her love for creating movies while growing up in Chicago, Taiwanese-American style, why people consider her one of the best negotiators at LinkedIn, and the intersectionality between being a woman of color in a high-powered career. Jen, thank you so much for, for coming today. I'd love just to jump right in. One of the videos you had on LinkedIn, you had mentioned that if you know money wasn't a concern, one of the things you would do would be to produce movies. I'd be curious if you could set some context for that question, how you got to that answer, and, and why you'd want to produce movies, and, and what kind of movies would you produce? I love that question. It's definitely something about me that you wouldn't know from just maybe working with me for a short period of time. I have always been a huge just movie fan since I was a, a young kid. And as I got a little bit older, I was curious about the process of making movies and, and the acting process, actually. Like, I think when I was really young and somebody asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think when I was like, I don't know, five, six, seven, I think I said I wanted to be a movie star, which is like so embarrassing now, like that I'm older and I know what that is. But yeah, I think I was just fascinated by the process of how movies are made. So even though my, you know, entire adult professional life, I've worked in the business world, kind of on the side, like as a hobby, I've taken acting classes for fun at NYU when I was living in New York City at the studio theater in DC when I was living in DC at the ACT in San Francisco. And so there would just be like me, totally not talented, but really into it, taking classes alongside people who wanted to act for a living and like make a career out of it. But I loved it. Like, I think what it is, is it's exercising a side of my brain that is like so far away from what, what I do in the, in the day job that it's, it's just really fun. And actually when I was in business school, in between my first and second year, you, you, you do the summer internship. And so other people were interning at like McKinsey or Goldman Sachs. I actually interned at Miramax Studios. I, I like, you know, went to New York and um, worked pretty much for free because that's the only way you can get an internship at Miramax at the time. Because I thought that maybe even after business school, I explored going to work for a movie studio Ultimately, I decided not to because as a business person, if you work at a movie studio, 
you are so far away from the core, which is the creative process of making movies. For me, it would have been like torture to be like in a studio, but not working on the core. And so I ultimately decided on a career in tech, which is very creative in its own way. But um, I've just kind of always had movies as like a side interest, you know? Jen, I, I love that. And I'm curious, when you were a kid, what were, what were some of your favorite movies? Oh my gosh. As a kid, honestly, the era I grew up, like, I don't think the sheer diversity of movie production was as around as it is today, but like, I watched anything that my very strict parents would let me watch. So, you know, like, like Goonies, I remember was one of my favorite movies. I grew up in the 80s, so like, this is going to totally date me. But like, if you haven't seen that movie, go look it up and watch it. it it's aged quite well, because I just had my son watch it recently and he loved it. I heard you say in there, you watched what your very strict parents would let you watch as a kid, right? <laughs> so I'm assuming there's no SpongeBob or no, you know, Fairly Odd Parents. I'm not sure if that was around in the 80s, but things like that. And I want to tie that a bit to this idea of values that you grew up with and how that ties to your identity. So could you tell us a bit about what that upbringing looked like, where you grew up and what kind of cultural background you're brought up with? I identify as Taiwanese American. My parents were born and grew up in Taiwan, and then they immigrated to the U.S. in that wave of immigration in the 60s, where a lot of Taiwanese and other Asians, I think, came to the United States to, to do their higher education. So they came for grad school. And so they were at grad school at Northwestern University at Evanston, Illinois. So what that meant is my brother and I were both born in Evanston while they were in grad school. And then they settled in the north suburbs of Chicago after finishing their degrees. And so I had like a very classic suburban Midwestern upbringing but Taiwanese American style, because, you know, because obviously my parents are Taiwanese. So from until I was 18 and left for college, I grew up in the Chicago burbs. And I think very happy and good childhood, but it was like this mix of my parents' values and like being part of the Taiwanese American community in Chicago. There's like this huge diaspora, like there's a big Taiwanese American community in Chicago that my parents were very plugged into. But then I was also growing up you know, in this very, very all-American suburb of Chicago, because we weren't very close to the city. It was like a suburb that was very homogenous at the time. It probably still is. And so I had to learn how to grow up in that environment and fit in, you know, to the extent I could. In some ways, I had this like super American childhood too. I guess in terms of how that felt or how that was, you know, I think I got from my Taiwanese American side, the classic immigrant upbringing, you know, lots of emphasis on hard work, academic achievement, high expectations, discipline, focus on the importance of family. Of course, because I'm an Asian American woman, I had to play the violin since the age of five. Right. <laughs> you <Yeah. know>? Same <laughs> here. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's a law or something. I don't know. And my brother played um, cello and piano. So he outdid me. He had two classical instruments. And I don't know if your parents made you do this, but like whenever they had Taiwanese American friends over, we would have to give them performances, like give performances in the family room. Like, what is that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mine didn't force me to, but they definitely alluded to the idea. And now in retrospect, I understand why they'd want to do it, right? Because it's almost like a signal 
on their end that, hey, look, we've kind of made it, you know, we're living this nice suburban life and look how talented our daughter is. So it's, it's definitely a status symbol, but totally hear you. It's, it feels very odd when you're a kid and you're asking me to do yeah, that, right? Not, not my favorite activity, but, you know, even though we had that classic Asian American upbringing, I have to give my parents credit. I didn't realize this until I was older, but they were, I think, a kinder, more flexible version of Asian American tiger parenting in the sense that, like, I was given, or maybe I took and they allowed me to take certain freedoms that, that I really wanted. So just as an example, like I insisted on playing sports and my parents, you know, told me sports are not a priority, schoolwork is. And then if you get all A's, then you'll be allowed to play sports. But I spent a lot of time on the track and cross country team. And like, that was only because I wanted to, like, I wanted to do all the things that like teenagers were doing, you know, go out on the weekend and stay out late and they had a certain amount of tolerance for that, that I think that maybe not all Asian American parents, at least of that era, gave people. I didn't feel like it then, to be honest, but as I grow up and have perspective, I, I feel like it was more balanced than I originally thought it was. A couple of threads I wanted to, I wanted to pull on. One was this idea of uh, performing. I, I don't know wh- who wrote about it or who spoke about it. I think it may have been Paul Graham, the founder of YC. And one of the things he mentioned was, one of the reasons why American culture and American business may be the way it is because of how in our childhoods, we kind of had these talent shows and we'd be performing a lot. And so we gained some more confidence on how to communicate with adults and how to present yourself in front of people. And so I can just picture picture like 12-year-old Jen <laughs> playing, playing the violin and just beginning the foundations of what it means to have executive presence and communication skills. Yeah, I mean, this idea of performance, it's like when you look back on your childhood, I think you can see things that you can't see when you're like in it but you know this idea of my parents just having very high expectations and like making us perform I feel like there were both good and bad implications from that on me so like let's start with the good so having high expectations I think ultimately really served me and my brother well meaning it wasn't like had to like instill fear and like threaten us they were never that kind of parent it's more just that like it was just understood from very very early that like you will do well and you will go on and be good people and you will work really hard and whatever you choose to do you're gonna you know do it really really well and it was sort of like by example too my parents both worked really really hard in their careers my dad was an engineer ultimately was at Motorola for decades And then my mom was very traditional in the sense that like, you know, she had dinner on the table that she cooked from scratch herself every day by six, but she had like a full-time career the entire time she raised us. So she was a toxicologist for a big pharma company in Chicago, and she brought to market an AIDS drug, which was like a very big deal at the time and takes years. And so she was very high achieving in her own sort of quiet, humble way. And so like, they just imparted in me, I was always expected to do as well as my brother, just even though I was a girl, there was no difference. And then I could see my mom having this amazing career. And so I think like that 
expectation and, you know, performing, oh, if you're going to do violin, you're going to do it well enough to perform for other people. Or, you know, I just remember like they made me do speech contests in Chinese. Like I had to speak Chinese, which again, I did not want to do, <laughs> but like, if you're going to do something, you're going to do it well. On the one hand, I think that was great because it, I grew up with this idea of like, oh, just because I'm, I'm a girl, like there's no limit. I think the downside, I think you get this belief that if you're not doing well or perfect or showing outwardly marked achievement all the time, then are you doing well? And I think that's like a dangerous thing that it flips into. And so I think later in life, I was pretty much a workaholic in my 20s and 30s. And you get this feeling of like, it's never enough. Like I could always do more. And so I think that's the downside. And I don't think they would think or even realize they imparted that to me. And I don't blame them for it, but it's like the um, flip side of this achievement oriented upbringing. Something I, I heard in what you just mentioned there, Jen, was this idea of intersectionality where you show up, especially professionally, not just as someone who's Asian American, but also as a woman. And I think there is a very unique and distinct experience to be had in the intersection of those two circles. And I love to hear a little more about that. You know, how has the experience of being Asian as well as a woman manifested for you when it comes to the professional world? Yeah, I think how it's shown up for me is I think there's certain stereotypes or expectations that people had about me. I think I felt it more so earlier in my career or mid-career, although I'm sure I still get it. I just have learned to deal with it. But I remember in my first job, I was an investment banking analyst. And I remember I was still like figuring out how to be a professional. Like this was my first job out of college and being at an investment bank on Wall Street is like a very intense environment. And I remember getting into fights is not the right word, but when I felt like I was being treated unfairly or some managing director was like screaming at me for something that I didn't do. I remember like in the beginning, I would push back and yell back. And first of all, you don't do that when you're an analyst. And I very quickly learned that, but like people would say, oh, you know, you're so, you're so emotional. Like that would be the feedback I would get. And I really felt like that's the, not so much the Asian thing, but maybe the female thing. But like, if I was expressing emotion, I was so emotional. Whereas I felt like a male analyst had reacted that same way. They'd be like, oh, he's just going out stadium or he's being, you know, he's being tough or whatever. Whereas because I was like maybe too feisty, I, I did not get good feedback for that, you know? And I, I, I take that learning. Like I, I probably for sure could have been more calm or constructive, but it's interesting that like I was told that I was too emotional, you know what I mean? And then later in my career, I got the feeling sometimes that when you're an Asian woman and you're not the loudest person in the room, which I'm not, I'm just, you know, my style is I'm not shy, but I'm, I'm not the first person to speak usually because I'm somebody who needs to process thoughts and ideas before I speak. And so I remember getting feedback mid-career as I was rising up the ladder, like, oh, why aren't you louder in meetings? Why aren't you more assertive? Like those kind of questions or feedback. And again, I think that in certain work cultures or company cultures, the behavior of talking a lot, talking first, talking about ideas before they're fully formed is very much rewarded. But people expect sometimes if you're a small Asian woman, 
like, oh, oh, you know, are you quiet because you're not assertive? It's like, I need, I need time to formulate my thoughts. So those are like two examples of when stereotyping might play in or, or what people expect of you might play in. I love the two examples you brought up because it, it, it almost seems like they're a bit diametrically opposed in the expectations that were put on you, right? Because the expectation based in stereotypes is very much so you're a kind of like quiet, just sit, sit in the corner, put your head down and work hard, and you're not expected to be loud or be assertive or be aggressive. But at the same time, that's career limiting. You're not rewarded for that. However, if you take on this approach of, I'm going to go in there and speak back against the managing director, you know, or just be very assertive about my perspective. You're almost punished in a sense for being too out there. So I'm curious for you, Jen, in your career, given these kind of like almost two opposing forces that you have to navigate, how do you, how do you find that middle ground and really carve out your own leadership style amidst all that? Yeah. I mean, so that observation you had is one that I've had too as I look back, meaning it, it was like I was given opposite feedbacks, but that was probably because part of it has to do with what environment you're in and what people's expectations are. So, you know, maybe on Wall Street in finance, people have certain expectations. And then in tech, which is where I was later when I was told to be more assertive and louder, different expectations. But I think the common thread is Earlier in my career, I paid so much attention of what people wanted to see from me. Like, what, what is the definition of success in this particular environment? How can I conform to that? You know, because you're trying to get rewarded. You're trying to climb the ladder. I was very focused, again, as, as I told you, on achievement. And so I was so busy trying to figure out what people wanted and trying to meet that expectation that it was definitely a journey to figure out like, what is my style? What works for me? Because ultimately what you realize is if you stretch so hard to try to conform to other people's definition of success, you definitely lose something along the way. Everybody should look for that in personal and career growth, but you can't stray too, too far and become a different person because First of all, it doesn't feel very good. And then ultimately you're not your best. And so I think it just took me a while to figure out like, okay, what is the best version of me? And I'm just going to do that because ultimately that works better. We, we've kind of intermittently spoken about your career journey um, throughout the last little while. I'd be curious to hear and, and to share with our listeners what that has been. Um, graduating from undergrad, you started in investment banking. What kind of happened after that? And kind of walk us through your career journey and, and where you're at today. Yeah, so I went to the undergraduate Wharton School program and I had a major in finance and marketing. And so I was pretty set on doing something in the business world. But beyond that, I just honestly did not know what I wanted to do. So I, I felt like the first five years of my career were really what I call like just setting foundations Everybody was either at that time, like going to Wall Street or management consulting. And I had no idea if I wanted to do either of these things long-term, but I basically spent a total of like five years, first in investment banking, then in management consulting. And it, I, I consider that like business boot camp. It's not particularly fun every minute, but they teach you so much. So that was like early career. And then I decided, I looked forward and looked at like the managing directors or whatever. And I'm like, do I want to be them? No. So then after five years, I ejected myself, I left. But it was incredible learning and I, I'm very glad I did it. And then I went into a phase of like, okay, 
I worked so hard. Now I'm just going to do what I want to do, which is, as you guys know, I was fascinated with entertainment and media. So I like did a 180 and went to go work for MTV because I was 25 years old living in New York City. And I was like, what is the most fun job I could do? <laughs> and I was watching a lot of MTV back then. So um, I somehow got myself a job doing business development at MTV. So by the way, that was my first BD job is, uh, at MTV. It was really crazy, really fun. They paid you almost nothing. <laughs> they paid you, like we used to joke, they pay you in free concert tickets and t-shirts, basically. Those are priceless, right? So yeah. <laughs> great remuneration, regardless. Yeah. Um, it, and it was actually, uh, that was my first taste of business development. Like, you know, how do you build new businesses by partnering with third-party companies? And it also got me into tech in the sense that, you know, all the media companies were experimenting with tech and the internet. And then I decided to take a break and go to business school before I got to full to do it, basically. So I went to business school, came out, I went, I joined some crazy internet media startup, which is like, you know, one of those bubble startups for the first internet crash. Then I joined AOL, which was a larger media company. Cause I was like, look, that startup was a disaster. I need to go to a big company and just like learn how, how it's done at a big company. I did biz ops essentially and business strategy at AOL. And then I was like, you know what, what am I doing here on the East coast? I'm going to move to Silicon Valley because I wanted to go work for a tech company. And so that started my time in Silicon Valley where I did some more ping pong. I joined a small startup that got acquired. I joined another small startup that eventually went bust in the 2008 crash. And then I went to MySpace when it was at its peak. And again, it was like a deliberate ping ponging because I wanted the startup experience but then I would go back to big companies where as a deal or biz dev person working for big platform companies and doing lots of deals, I was like, I need to groom myself as a BD professional and you get access to doing certain kinds of deals at large platform companies that are doing well. So like, even though MySpace ended up tanking eventually because Facebook ate its lunch, you know, during the time I was at MySpace, I did so many deals of so many kinds it was like BD bootcamp. You know what I mean? I did their first deals with Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Google. And then after MySpace, so I learned so much at that point about what kind of company I wanted to work for. Cause I'd worked for a lot of companies at that point, given where I was in my career, my next company, I was like, you know what, the next company I pick, I want to stay at for a while and had very specific criteria and like I had a spreadsheet and a list of target companies in Silicon Valley and LinkedIn was at the top of the list. And so it was a very deliberate choice for me to come to work to LinkedIn. It just took me two years to network my way into my job at LinkedIn. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are curious about what business development at LinkedIn looks like. Could you give us a, a quick overview of that? Yeah, sure. So business development is a function that exists at you know, a number of companies, but I find it's a function that has the most variant, but some companies it's like almost like channel sales or a version of like strategic sales. The version of BD at LinkedIn is a very different kind of version. So BD at LinkedIn, so first of all, it's kind of unusual. We sit within the product org and that's because LinkedIn's a platform. A lot of our partnerships have some level of product integration and the goal of you know, partnerships or BD at LinkedIn is we're, we're here to do partnerships that accelerate product or business strategy. You know, we're ultimately trying to deliver value to the user 
LinkedIn and obviously the partners well, but we have to be very close to the product strategy to make our partnerships effective. So that's the flavor of product oriented B, which is not to say that like monetization or revenue is not very important in a number of our partnerships. They are, but ultimately it often connects back to some sort of product integration. And, you know, the way BD is structured at LinkedIn, you're responsible for the entire life cycle. So we're not just deal makers because that's the part of BD most people associate BD with. Like, oh, you do the deal. Doing the deal is actually a very small percentage of the work. It's very important. But the way we look at BD is, is three pillars. So the first pillar is landscape insights. And we've had a number of meetings lately, Angie, where you know what that's about. But like, it's our job to understand the landscape, translate the landscape to people inside the company and make sense of it. The second pillar is the deal making. So figuring out what is the partner strategy because every deal should tie to a strategy. Then we figure out who we do the deal with, negotiate and close the deal. And then the third pillar is partner program management, which is a big part of getting the value out of the deal. And that is, you know, so many skills come into play there. Relationship building, it could be operational. It's like running the dealer of the program and measuring the success and con continuing to deliver value. That, that is the third pillar. So two follow-up questions on that, Jen. Something that we speak about internally was that you are the best negotiator on the team. So curious, curious why people think that. I am not fully certain how I got that reputation. I have guesses. <laughs> So my boss, who is the person that hired me almost 10 years ago, I've heard him say it. So maybe, maybe I have Scott to thank and to blame for giving me that reputation. I think I have that reputation because um, at this point, I've been doing deals for over a decade. I have done deals of so many flavors, and I really feel like business development is a discipline that you can't learn by reading. I mean, people sometimes ask me, people getting into the function, like, oh, can you point me to some, like, the best BD book to read? Or, like, how do I learn how to do BD? And I'm always at a bit of a loss because I learned it purely on the job. And so when you see the angles and you've done it over and over again, and, and they're all different, that, I think that makes you a good deal person because I've done it and I've seen all the different ways deals can play out and the risks and, like, what works, what doesn't work. The other thing about me that I think maybe is less obvious and this goes to like maybe your question Angie like when you're a small Asian woman I think sometimes people underestimate you and they're sometimes surprised I think that I'm a tough negotiator and what I mean by tough negotiator is I'm like the same person in doing deals as I am talking to you guys but I go into deal negotiations very prepared I ask for what I want on behalf of my company and I negotiate very hard for those things. And I just think people are sometimes surprised that this like small Asian woman is like a super tough negotiator and I'm not mean about it. I just, I don't give up very easily and I negotiate hard for what I want. Um, and I try to be smart about it. I try to be analytical I also don't just look at the analysis. I read the situation, the relationships. You know, I pay a lot of attention to who I'm negotiating against and like what kind of person they are. So like, I think that's part of it too. 
I love that so much. You're almost turning a, a typically negative association based on your identity and your appearance into something that is a superpower for you, right? Where you go against the expectations of others and through that you're able to, to forge more success for yourself. But to bring this full circle a bit, Jen, having women in leadership at LinkedIn is something that has kind of shown you that there is a path there for you as well, right? And kind of like inspired your own path. And I'd be curious to learn more about what that story looked like for you. And moreover, looking forward into the future, how do you see ways for more Asian Americans and or women to be in leadership? And what are some things you are thinking of to help them instigate that journey? I'll talk mostly about LinkedIn just because I have spent most of my last decade there. So when I first joined, I don't remember there being tons of senior women and having come from like banking and like tech startups, I mean, it wasn't like so shocking or unusual to me. I was almost used to it at that point, but I remember having this feeling um, that like, oh, LinkedIn is this incredible place to work. I'm going to stay a while, but like making it to the VP level at LinkedIn did not even, I remember in the early days, occur to me as a possibility. Like it wasn't even like my goal. Cause I, I, I was just like that, that's not going to happen for me here. But then over time, actually it changed. And I just saw that women were re- reaching very senior levels. At, but over time I started to see it. So then I was like, huh, oh yeah, maybe it is possible. It's still really hard because there's not that many, but it's possible. And so I guess over time, I want it to be very visible and possible to other women. Like, yes, of course, women can reach the senior levels at LinkedIn or companies like LinkedIn. And Asian American women, of course, should be included that are women of color. I think LinkedIn's made so much progress since I started almost 10 years ago, but we're not there yet. Like, you know, for example, in the BD team right now, I think I'm the only woman on the BD team who's director level and up. And that should and will change. And I think to answer the second part of your question, two ways. Like, first of all, we have to groom the pipeline internally. Like there's a lot of great women at the mid levels and we have to make sure they make it to the top. And the reasons they don't are multiple, but like essentially we have to make sure that we're giving them the opportunities to prove their skills and to gain the skills they need to reach VP and up. I'm personally very invested in that and like the people on my team and even the ones not on my team, like whether I mentor them informally or look for opportunities to get them, you know, the assignments or the work experience they need to get there. That's very important to me. The other way is when director and up positions open up and we hire from the outside, like, so if you hire for a director and up BD position in tech, if you just take the natural flow of resumes that you get, most of them are going to be men, just the way the industry makeup, right? So you have to look particularly hard and make sure you have a diverse slate that if a, if a woman comes through and maybe on paper, like she doesn't have like the perfect, perfect, perfect experience, you know, give people with a wider set of backgrounds a chance to prove themselves in the interview process. I'm hoping that, you know, we'll look even more different in a few years and it won't be so unusual to see women at the VP level and up. Jen, this has been an absolute pleasure uh, to be able to hear your story. For our last question, something that we like to ask all of our guests before we wrap up, what were the things that you did 
like exceedingly well at a younger age or things that you would provide as advice for people trying to achieve the same level of personal or professional success that you've reached? I guess I would maybe mention two things. Something that I think that I did well that, you know, I think served me well in all sorts of companies or jobs that I had is if there was like a, something at work where it was like a hard problem to figure out or there was like white space and it was like, you know, very unstructured and not very certain, like what should be done. If you can analyze the situation, connect the dots and bring order and structure and create a coherent recommendation and back it up with analysis and conviction, that served me really well, whether I was doing consulting or BD at a tech company or strategy at a tech company, analyzing a situation, making sense of it, and then having a vision of what could be, that was a skill that served me over and over again. Like people love people who can figure shit out, you know what I mean? And like, who don't need to be told what to do or how to do it. The other, I guess, advice, I'm a big believer in people should play to their strengths. You know, like there's like different schools of thought. Are you gonna get further by like bolstering your weaknesses? You have to make sure your some of your weaknesses aren't career killers. But in general, like I found it better to lean into what I am naturally good at that I'm interested in doing, that I'm passionate about, you are just going to be better if you just lean into that. And it, it kind of goes hand in hand as well as like really learning how to be yourself. Like early in my career, I tried so hard to be like a certain kind of style. And at a certain point, you have to figure out what are you good at? Like, what is your style? And, and that, that would be the advice. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.